Welcome to the HR Futures Podcast, brought to you by Expedite HR, the organisation behind Working Futures, the event for HR directors, and the new mobile application, Circa, the only app dedicated to developing and improving the HR profession. This podcast is also brought to you in association with Zealous, the market-leading provider of payroll, HR, and managed services. With me today is Raj Verma, who is the Global Senior VP for Human Resources at Sodexo. First of all, that's a fantastic job title. Is, 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 how long have you had that job title? Well, it's amazing what you can write for yourself, isn't it? <laughs> um, I've had it for a while, um, almost four years now, and I'm still getting used to how long it takes me to write it down. So tell us a bit about uh, Sodexo. Um, tell us about the breadth, the size of it. And a bit about what you do, because I know that's changed over the last 10 years. Yeah, look, let me start, um, start with the why and the purpose. So our purpose really is about improving quality of life. Um, and then if I think about what does that mean, um, what we do is we offer and deliver services um, to individuals at work whenever and wherever. Um, and I think we believe that that results, that gives us far better impact on organisational results if you actually focus on the people in the first instant. Um, so the services that we provide are everything from catering, um, reception, maintenance, cleaning, um, you know, in-home, in-home assistant, childcare centres, concierge services. Um, the aim is to allow clients to focus on their core business. So you take over the sort of peripheral services around the facilities, yeah. the things that are a non-core in terms of them delivering their offering. Absolutely. You know, we're... we're, we're, we're Formed in 1966, um, we're listed on the, the, the CAC 40, um, we're just over 20 billion in terms of revenue, we have 460,000 employees worldwide. 460,000? Yeah, we're the 19th largest um, employer in the world, um, and 72 countries with 100 million consumers served every day. Um, so our reach to the marketplace is, is pretty, um, pretty broad and pretty deep. Um, but you know what, what's great about the Sodexo culture um, is that we're still family-owned, pretty much. Um, oh, our really? founder, Pierre Ballon, still comes into the office pretty much every day. Um, and I think it's that level of commitment that's demonstrated throughout the organisation that makes a big impact um, when you join when you join Sodexo. Um, and the way that we work um, across the world is that we're um, globally organised, um, so we have different markets, ranging from corporate, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. healthcare, seniors, education, sports and leisure... Um, but everything is driven um, by the global business, and that's how the strategy is. is, is so it's driven by the markets rather than by the geography. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I, I suppose I always think of you, and I, again, this is my just my history as very much a caterer. So how big is catering as part of the overall mix of that twenty billion? How much of it is? I think catering is still a core part of our business, and you know our passion for food will never never wane. Um, but, you know, the market has evolved so much in the past 10, 15 years. And, you know, when you're an integrator of services yeah, and a yeah. provider of different services, um, we have a lot of IFM contracts, we have a lot of global yeah. contracts, um, and their expectation is that level of consistency and they want a one-stop shop. Um, so for me, the, it, it's, it's, it's always a, a mixed variable. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we'll have countries with a high food element, some countries will have a mixed IFM okay. or integrated facilities yeah, yeah, yeah. management element. Okay. Tell us a little bit about, I think you said you've been there 12 years and yeah. obviously you've progressed within the organisation. 
Um, but tell us a little bit about your journey into HR. Um, how did you get into HR? Let's start right at the beginning of your career. Was it a, was it a conscious choice? Or was it something you sort of fell into and thought, actually, I've got a passion for this. So I'm always interested in how people end up in HR. For sure, I didn't um, grow up wanting to be a HR director. Um, <laughs> actually, I wanted to be a lawyer. And, um, you know, I watched uh, a lot of um, American programs on TV and things like Rumpel of the Bailey in the, you yeah. know, back home. And um, so, you know, I read law at, um, at the University of London. Um, I did various experiences over that time and... They're a little different to the dream. Um, I realized quite quickly that I wasn't cut out. Um, it just, for me, it wasn't fast enough or pacey enough. And maybe I just wasn't smart enough. I don't know. Um, but I was lucky enough to get a scholarship um, to do a, an MSc in management science, just so that you know, I could figure out what, what the world was really about. And um, so, so what was that? That was, a, that was an inclination that actually the leadership running a business seems something I might be interested in. From the outside in, it looked a lot more fun. Um, you know, just figuring out how organisations worked, what was important, you know, what was, what, was, what was so important about the client and the consumer and, how, and what's a P&L and how do you run that and how do you sell stuff, how do you make stuff. Yeah. Um, so I really enjoyed, enjoyed that and I moved on to um, do a graduate development programme, a um, company now called Aviva which I'm sure you've heard of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there I rotated through functions, through different roles um, in finance, in marketing, in operations, in projects. Um, and what I really liked was the organisational change piece. Um, and that really struck a chord. And at the end of my um, graduate training programme there, they didn't have any opportunities in, in HR or in that space. Okay. And um, so I made a conscious decision to go um, and, and spend a little bit more time in the HR Space yeah. to see if it's what I want to do. So I joined Ford Motor Company. Which is an interesting place to do HR, I'm sure. When was this? This must have been, what, 80s? Or? This, no, this was um, 1998. Right. I know I look older than I am, but um, <laughs> it was 1998 and it was I moved straight to Dagenham, you know, so right in the, in the midst of, they had huge race relation issues at the time and... Um, it was in the news pretty much yeah, every week. Yeah. Um, so it's a real sort of baptism of fire um, when I when I when I joined. Employee relations high in the mix, I'm Abs- sure. Absolutely. Dealing with unions always. A- but you know, you, you cut your teeth, right? I mean, it was probably the best place to yeah. to learn your trade, as it were. Um, and I'm going back t- more than twenty years yeah. here, and things were different then, and things were done differently. Um, and, and and certainly, I think um, that experience of leaving financial services. And going into a manufacturing engineering environment was, you know, chalk and cheese. Um, but, you know, it was sink or swim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You sort of, you, there was no, you know, gentle onboarding. You were <laughs> right in there and um, you had to figure it out. And yeah. look, it had a great support structure, it had some great, great talent in there. Yeah. And I learned an awful lot and it really set me up for the future. So what was your sort of big takeaway from that sort of early experiences? As you say, baptism of fire, jump in. <laughs> I think um, Ford, from my perspective, gave me um, the best foundation in in professional HR. Um, it was structured, it was well-organised, it was well-placed career paths, it was great development. I did my professional qualifications there. Um, you know, and, and HR was taken very seriously at Ford. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and you really had to be on top of the game if you wanted to compete with the best out there. And, and I think for me... One of the things that always struck me was that Ford really focused high on HR neatness. 
um, making sure that there were things were done the way they need to be done. They were very clear. Um, and somewhere in the back of my mind, I look back, um, I think, you know, where was the creativity? Where was the, the spark? Where was the chance to fail faster? You know, all the things mm. that you talk about today. Yeah. But that was a different time. And what, what, what I understood and learned and experienced was absolutely fit for purpose for them. So it worked. Yeah. It was about conformity and application of good process because that's what they'd learn worked for them in their marketplace and, you know, in terms of what they were delivering at that moment in time. It was. And, you know, lean manufacturing was all in vogue then and I became Six Sigma trained and that was yeah. great. I mean, where else do you get that level of experience? Um, and working with great engineers, great minds, great technicians, it's, you know, I wouldn't have changed it for the world. And I had a really good, you know, seven plus years there. Yeah. And I moved for the different brands. I was at Jaguar Land Rover. I was at Ford Credit. Yeah. I worked in Liverpool, in the Hellwood plant and a lot of change environments at the time. Sure. Um, and there some great, great people there. And then you went back into financial services. So what you thought, I well, did. I finished with yeah. manufacturing, back into financial services. Well, right? you know, it was, um, it was one of those things, you know, I could have stayed at Ford, Jaguar Land Rover for life. Um, you know, but there was something in me which says, you know, you've got to figure out how HR is done elsewhere. You know, when you're in manufacturing automotive, there's some great processes and practices and you've got, you know, an interesting culture, working with the unions. And, um, but I just want to try something different. I just finished my MBA there. Um, so it was a tough call to leave after seven, seven yeah. odd years. Um, and Ford had been very, very good to me in terms of my professional development. Um, so when I got the call with regards to moving into um, Abbey National, it was at the time, they were going through a huge, huge change. Um, and, and a lot of the roles I'd done was about transformation and, and bringing different yeah, yeah. organizational elements together. Um, so, you know, I, I sort of, I went through a bit of a mourning period. Um, oh, okay. I don't know if people do that, you know, for the first few weeks, have I done the right thing? I, I don't know if it was buyer's remorse or something, I don't know. But um, it was a brilliant, brilliant move. Um, you know, Abbey National at the time was wanted to change the face of banking um, but lo and behold, in a world of change, Abbey National then got bought by Santander literally three months later. Right. Um, and that was a real sort of eye-opener in terms of... So what, what, what was... So being acquired is always interesting. Yes. But tell us about what it meant for you. So you were three or four months in, you just about presumably got your feet under the table, just starting to understand how it works and operates. And then the world changes. It it did. And I, look after, I looked after um, predominantly most of the back office, so all of IT, which was the biggest part of yeah. Abbey National in terms of making the bank work. Um, so when Santander bought Abbey National, they'd clearly done enough of their due diligence to realise that's where you're going to leverage the economies of scale, that's how yeah. you're going to do things differently, and that's what they had done in other parts of the world. Um, so I was actually the first HR person that got totally involved with the Spanish leadership. Um, all of my peers couldn't figure out what the big deal was. And they soon found out after they'd gone through um, <laughs> the back office. But the experience, you know, of working with a Spanish acquirer, their expectations, their norms, very different. Um, and even bringing that leadership team that was very sort of um, English in Abbey yeah, National, yeah, yeah, sitting imagine. across the table from some very... Um, experienced international Spanish leaders. Um, it, it was, you know, it was a huge um, eye-opener for both parties. Um, and because people in Abbey National had never been acquired, they'd always acquired yes, smaller absolutely. organizations. So 
For them, this was all new news. So, you know, we put a lot of effort into the change management piece and communication. There were obviously casualties as part of that change. Um, but the aim was to make the bank stronger. Um, so trying to work with this, the new CIO, trying to work with... How was you perceived at that time? Was you perceived as, because you were quite new to the organisation, so you didn't yeah. have the sort of cultural baggage and yeah. having been there as man and boy and then all of a sudden being acquired. And So presumably it was easier for you to adjust and absorb the new culture and the new ways of doing stuff? Well, I think um, yes and no. Yes, because I was... Sort of, I was new, but I was part of a whole cohort of people that were brought in to change HR. Okay. Um, you know, so we had a lot of new leaders in HR in the business. But for me, mine was mine was the area that was impacted first. Yeah. So I took all the arrows. I took all the pain. I had all the learnings. Um, so it was a tough, tough period. Yeah, yeah. But because, you know, more by hook or crook, but I, I didn't understand enough of the legacy of Abbey National to be able to make that an issue. Yeah, so yeah. for me, it was like, how do we move forward? How do we get best of both? Yeah, yeah. Um, but the Santander way was, well, here's the answer. This is what we're going to do. We need you guys to help us figure out how to do it. We're not having the debate about what it is we need to do. Okay. We're having the debate about how we make it work in the UK. So when you look back on that experience, do you think they managed the transition and the acquisition and the execution of change or the integration well? Look, one thing I learned working with the team from Spain was that it was built on relationships. Um, so, I, I, you know, I'd learned a lot about working through the unions and working with the unions to get stuff done. Um, so I actually invested a lot of time building rapport with the CIO, with the senior leadership that was brought over. So they actually had an element of actually, you know, we can trust this guy. Because I think trust was a big, big part of the, the conversation um, and I think, you know, the more you were able to explain and articulate what was important to people, what was important to um, some of the systems, the processes, you know, a lot of things we had to change. And that was fine yeah. because the culture was very different. Um, but essentially, I think what, what the change meant was that people had to adopt and adapt far faster than they've ever had to do before. Okay. And your role there, was it, I mean, obviously there's a really big restructuring element, uh, reorganisation. Uh, did you do much work on the sort of cultural stuff and norms and values and all that stuff? Yeah, so look, we did a couple of things. I mean, I was the business partner for, for pretty much all the back office. Um, so we spent a lot of time working on, um, you know, how English people work with Spanish people. What's the perception when people say one thing, what does it really mean? So getting people a bit more normalised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we do a lot of that even now today in Sodexo. We, we have the cultural navigator with something that we use online to help people when they move overseas. But at that time, we didn't have that level of sophistication, but we had that level of insight that you have to be able to get people to see things from different perspectives. Um, and that was hugely important. And, you know, straight after I led the HR shared services business, I started oh, to consolidate cool. all the back offices, closed down some service centres and, and built, you know, in Milton Keynes, it became the, the, the shared service centre of, of, of the UK um, and essentially looked after half, half that board. Um, before I left, okay. um, and I was so, so why leave? Was that was that was, um, was it was it an obvious move to, to to look for an HR director's job? Was that the appeal of what came next? Well, I was offered the HR direct, a HR director's job there at the time, but it almost felt you know three and a bit years. 
I felt as if I'd done my bit. Um, it was a tough three years, um, you know, and, and, you, and you go through that cycle of learning, understanding, changing. Um, and for me, it just felt the right time to, to, yeah. to move on, um, you know, and leaving it in a place that was far better than, than when it was when I first joined and, and having a, a team that was very credible. Um, you know, I was able to, I had the luxury of time to find my own successor um, and all those things helped with a seamless sort of okay. next move. And why Sodexu then? Um, at that time, I mean, that, obviously. At yeah. that time, it was a challenge. I met, um, I was really impressed by the CEO. So um, the guy who, who, you know, really impressed was a guy called Philip Jansen, um, who's now at BT. Um, really liked his vision, his ideas, his pace, his energy. Um, and the HR leadership, you know, I, I spent time with a lot of them. And, you know, they all wanted to do the right thing. You know, and the culture... Um, wasn't a mercenary culture. It felt very family orientated. People okay. were very happy to help. Um, the flip side, um, it probably wasn't as pacey or as edgy as it needed to be. Was it as competitive? Um, was it growing as fast as it should? There were a lot of things that could have been done differently in the HR space. So when I was bought in, I came in as a comp and bend director. And oh, then right. suddenly I became responsible for shared services, for resourcing, for talent, for parts of L&D. Um, so basically everything that nobody else seemed to, <laughs> seemed to want to do. Um, you know, working with the unions, um, the whole employee engagement piece. So, you know, I had a feel that the organisation really wanted to change, but didn't quite know how to change. And, you know, being in the UK, which at that time was pretty much, you know, a part of a huge organisation which wasn't globalised. It was pretty much, you know, they had a centre in, in Paris and it was relatively decentralised and you sort of did what you needed to do. Within your own market. Absolutely. But, you know, and, and like with most organisational models, there's a, there's, a, there's a scale issue, there's an efficiency issue. Um, a lot of wheels were reinvented many times, I'm sure. <laughs> um, building networks, you know. How do you reduce that noise to, to become the most effective way you can of, of delivering? Yeah. Now, I'm going to sort of move us on. And you may come back to Sodexo, you may go back to earlier parts in your career. But tell us some stuff, you know, tell us a couple of things that you're really proud of in your career. Things that you can see that made a big difference organisationally. And that may be in the Sodexo role, it mm -hmm. could be earlier, but I'm always interested in stories where you go, this is where we started, you know, these are the four things that we pulled and this is where we ended up. Because I think that, you know, it makes us feel good about ourselves, but it also makes us feel good about, you know, the profession we're in. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I was fortunate enough to um, be sent to Australia, um, not as a criminal, um, <laughs> on, assignment for, yeah, on assignment for four years with Sodexo. Um, and honestly, that was the best time. Um, you know, it was a family decision. We wanted to, to do something a bit different. Um, didn't think they'd send me to the other end of the planet. But um, nonetheless, it was, uh, you know, a huge sort of move for us. Um, so getting the family. Um, How old were the children? Well, at the time, they were five and three. Yeah, they're right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the right age, not yeah, yeah. To, to get me into too much trouble, um, yeah. schooling-wise. Um, so... <laughs> When I looked at the opportunity, it was really, uh, there was a new CEO um, and, you know, really connected with him. Um, he had some great ideas, some great vision. Um, and what I enjoyed about that role was that the buck stopped with me. 
Um, so, you know, Australia, New Zealand, roughly $800 million business, yeah, nice business. mostly oil mining and gas. Um, okay. And, you know, we wanted to instantly, coming from the UK, I could see opportunity. You know, things that maybe could be done differently, um, could evolve, could transform the business um, to make it far more efficient behind the scenes. Um, so, you know, we went down this whole sort of visioning piece of what it could look like in the future. Um, there was no burning platform, but sometimes I think that's the best time to make change when you're not forced to, but you but you feel that you want to and, and you know yeah, you're yeah, going yeah. to need to. Um, you know, so we went through a four-year pretty much journey of looking at how we were organised, looking at what we wanted to deliver for our clients and our consumers, um, and understanding what mattered most to our people. Yeah. Um, you know, when I moved to Australia, the culture is very different to the, to the UK. Um, and, you know, it took me time to settle in. It took me time to understand a lot was built far more on relationships than anything else. And look, when you're an expat, people expect more of you because they know you've come in at a cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so they want to see that value and what are you going to do to yeah, really yeah. help us sustain and grow. And it's always a challenge when you first go into those type of environments, not just to deploy what you've done before and try and prove yourself immediately with here's some great tools I've got, let's do these. Yeah. It's a- absolutely 100%. And I think, you know, the Australian culture is, you know, they want to know why. <laughs> why should I do this? You know, you convinced me why I should do this. So I learned pretty early on that, you know, having a far more collaborative approach to getting people to, to, to share their insights and ideas and think how they could do things differently. Yeah. You know, I started a network um, with different HR directors around Melbourne, around Sydney, okay. um, Perth, just to get an insight in terms of their experiences. Um, and I think, you know, my learning wasn't, and my CEO said, you know, you're not here to make decisions in your first 90 days. You're here to learn, listen, and understand. Yeah. And never a true word said in jest, yeah, right? Absolutely. Because it's easy to try and get those quick wins, but what you what you can do is undermine the relationship that you're trying to build yeah. with that team. So, and, and in that period, you talked about the sort of the four-year journey, CEO, new ideas, focus on doing things better. Just tell us a couple of things that you did that you think were sort of key levers, key sort of HR activities that moved the business from where it was to mm. where you wanted to go. I think some of the things that we, we ran sort of almost siloed businesses within Australia, so we had oil mining gas, we had a bit of education business, we had some corporate services business, some healthcare business, some defence. Um, and what we weren't leveraging was those economies of scale and learnings. Yeah. So the most obvious thing would have been to scoop all the stuff that's agnostic to the consumer and the client um, and make that as efficient as possible, look at having the appropriate HRIS yeah. come in, look at the technology that's available um, and reduce all of those pain points that, that you discover along the journey um, and put yourself in the shoes of an employee or prospective employee wanting to yeah. join your organization. What does it feel like? Right? What does it feel like when you get a call or when you see something online for a job? What's that experience about? So, you know, it's far more robust today than it was, what, eight years ago now. Um, but we sort of figured a bit of that as we were <laughs> moving through the experiences. Um, so, we, you know, we looked at payroll, we looked at our administration, um, we looked at up, upscaling the HR business partners, getting them the right training, getting them good mentors, 
Um, we looked at how we educated our site managers to become far more um, resilient and self um, yeah. self delivery in terms of a lot of the advice that they would get if they rung a HR advice line. Um, for me, it wasn't revolutionary stuff. I mean, we're going back to almost Ulrich and his HR business partnering model, you know, version one. Um, but, you know, you have to tweak things along the way to accommodate the culture, to accommodate the market, to accommodate the pace of change. It's one thing I did learn, you can't outpace an organisation. You know, you have to bring them with you. And where did that come from, that piece of learning, outpacing an organisation? Absolutely in Australia, because I, you know, it felt like surely we can move faster and quicker with some of this stuff, but people just weren't ready. Now, you know, my first boss at, at Ford said to me, you know, there's two things you can do in life. You can either change the people or you can change the people, right? So we really wanted to do the first so we really want, you know, this was in our DNA. Sodexo is not a hire and fire type of organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our culture um, is very much about giving everybody opportunity. It's about making sure that, you know, we're seen as a bit of a social elevator. You know, these are entry level jobs that people can build careers on. Um, so we wanted to give everybody the opportunity. Um, you know, some parts it worked, some parts it didn't. But, you know, we all started with, with a fair, fair footing. Okay. Um, and that was really important. That was my learning, you know. Look at the people around you, not just the people ahead of you. So, Raj, on the opposite side of that, tell us a bit about, um, you know, when you look back in your career, you know, mistakes, things that didn't work and what you've learned from there. Because, you know, we learn as much from the things that don't go well as from the things where we get great success. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, with hindsight, you know, what I would have liked to have done is spent far more time in operations, far more time um, in a P&L, um, or maybe even another function like marketing. Um, because I think it, it, it's really important to get as close to the consumer as possible, um, as close to your employees as possible, as close to the pointy end as possible. You know, it helps you stay grounded. And I think that's really important when you're a HR leader. So two questions uh, to follow on from that, because mm. I'm with you. I, I mean, I think our HR careers need to be a bit broader. I think we need to think about the talent we bring into our uh, profession. But anyhow, why didn't you go and do an operational role or a P&L? Look, I think um, part of it, certainly in, in Ford, um, it was almost a well-laid-out path. Yeah, yeah. You know, you do this job, you get that grade, you do that job, and so on and so forth. And there were very few people, if any, that I knew actually moved out of their functional career yeah, ladder. Yeah. And actually, you know, if you wanted to be a great HR person, you went to Ford. So why would you yeah. do that and then suddenly leave after and do, you know, so yeah, yeah. That, that was one area. And secondly, I think I just didn't realise, I didn't have, I guess, that level of foresight to, to realise that actually you get to a level in an organisation when it's too hard. It's too hard to suddenly become an owner of a P&L. Yeah, you don't have the experience. You sort of get too senior, don't you? In some yes. ways you go, well, actually, I'm already at that. I have to move. I'm going to have to go yeah. backwards and downwards. So... Does that limit and I, I, the opportunity for HR leaders to become chief execs? Because there's very few of them, you know. You look around, not just in the UK, but you look globally, there's very few chief execs, MDs, that have been HR professionals. And is that because we don't have a diverse enough career early on? We don't get some nice operational mm. sales roles, marketing roles under our belt so we can prove that we can... I think, I'm interested. I'm really yeah. interested in this. I think partially yes and partially no. I think yes on the basis that, you know, if we had a more varied um, 
exposure to different careers, I think your credibility factor certainly rises within an organisation, certainly the C-suite, rightly or wrongly. Um, I think on the other side, you know, being a professional HR leader and going through um, all the different roles, the different experiences, the different cycles and organisations yeah. going through equally adds a lot of value. If I, you know, future forward think, I think the role of the CEO, you know, is becoming far more about people than it is about anything else. Um, and my, um, if I was a betting betting man, I'd say that you will start to see far more um, CEOs who've either spent time as a HR leader somewhere um, or who actually has been a HR leader and a HR professional for most of their career. Because I think that ability to make sure you're driving the right culture, the behavior, the values, that is the differentiator for the future of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, no doubt. Uh, any idea about what we need to be doing for preparing sort of HR leaders for that transition? Look, I think um, for me, there's a couple of things I wish I'd done sooner. I did them later. Um, certainly exposure to greater leadership coaching um, and doing roles in talent, you yeah. know, how you spot talent, how you um, work with talent, how you grow that talent, um, but also having a great level of exposure to mentoring. Um both as a mentor and a mentee, because I think learning comes both you know, ways. Both ways. Um, and I think if you can get some of that bedrock done sooner rather than later, it just holds you in good stead, because what it does, it's given you much longer to perfect some of those, those traits uh, and become a lot more confident when you're having those conversations at the C-suite or with mm. external clients or, or whatever. Um, you know, you, you have to have something like that in place. The other thing I would say is, you know, find yourself a great sponsor. Find somebody <laughs> earlier in your career who can give you, you know, a real world view. Um, is not afraid to pull any punches, but will try and get the best, you know, to be your best HR self. Did you find someone that played that role for you? Do you know, I found three or four people. And I'm still in touch with them now. You know, I, I stay in touch with all my bosses. Every single CEO I've worked with or group HRD, I've stayed connected with. And I think that's so important because they will know parts of you that only they will know. And then when you start to pull it together, you figure out, okay, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. there's ups and downs, there's good and bad. But, you know, in the whole, there's learning from every single experience. And, and for me, you know, there have been some great experiences I've had uh, with people from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different insights and different expectations. Okay, change the sort of direction of it. Tell us a bit about, you know, your current role within uh, Sodex, so as, um, you know, the group HRD. And, you know, what are the key things that you're focusing on? What are the things that you can perceive that the HR function can really help the business, you know, uh, grow, develop and win in the next five or six years? What are the there's two or three things that you're focusing on? Um, well, I'm not quite the group HRD, okay. um, so I look after the business unit of corporate services, which is about you know, 170,000 people It's big worldwide. enough, Roger. It's, it's big, big enough. enough. It is big <laughs> enough. Um, for me, I think, you know, the big opportunity for us in Sodexo is about the workplace and the employee experience, um, you know, to look at how people, technology and real estate come together. I think that's the space that we need to be focusing on. Um, you know, what we see is the traditional workplace is definitely um, not helping companies in terms of engagement, health and well-being, work-life balance. And 
you know, these are real serious issues, I think, that are impacting um, mental health, burnout. Um, and on top of that, you've got this continuing talent war happening yeah, yeah, yeah. all around you at every level. Um, you know, so as an organisation, what, what we try and do, what we, you know, have done is find ways of simplifying some of those interactions between people, um, reducing some of the overload that you can you see yeah, by yeah, not yeah. having the right environment around you. Um, and I think that employee experience, um, you know, that's the area that we really need to continually help our clients improve. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and part of the challenge that we have is that, you know, changing nature of work, you know, you're blurring the nine to five, you're blurring home and work, and yeah, it's yeah. far more blended now than it ever has been. And, you know, typically... You see that when people just carry one smartphone, because you know what on that smartphone is their work and their home life. Yeah. Um, and and I think you know how do you do you find that 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 space? Um, so you know, for us to help organisations, it's really about how you connect communities of people together. How do you find that space to collaborate? How do you find that space for them to perform better? Um, you know, in, in a workplace, it's very fluid. Yeah. You know, people are always working from home all the time. How do you build that level of collaboration? You know, do you find co-working spaces? Do you find different ways of connecting um, through FaceTime, through yeah. Skype, through whatever? Um, but, you know, at the heart of it, I think that level of experience creates the environment people want to be in. And so for you, you presumably, I mean, a lot of that's what you do with your clients and the services mm. you offer your clients. So yep. you've You've got to practice what you preach, I'm yeah. assuming. And, and, and so how, what are some of the challenges for you? Because I was thinking about, you know, the countries you operate, mm-hmm. you're very geographically dispersed. You've also got on multiple sites, presumably, a lot of your staff yeah. working different office buildings. How do you connect with them? How do you touch them? How do you build an employee experience mm-hmm. when I'm a cleaner in this building over here, I'm running catering over here, I'm running yeah. a facilities management, you know, you know, you may be in the same city, but you'll have completely different work environments. How do you, what's the golden thread for Sodexi? What do you connect with people? How do you emotionally get them to buy in? I think one of the things that we do, and I think we do relatively well, is that we get people to connect on the way in. So when people join Sodexo, they understand what our purpose is. It's about quality of life. So, you know, what we try and do is become very outcome focused. So when you're joining us, it's about, not what you're doing, but why you're doing it. Um, and that's really important right at the start. I think the second piece is that the touch points that we have with all of our employees, you know, we're constantly trying to make sure they're consistent and they provide that, that experience that, that you would expect. Um, you know, we're trying to use a lot of technology. We're trying to become a lot more virtual to connect people. Yeah. You know, we have over 35,000 sites around the world. Yeah. You know, some of these sites in the middle of Australia are, are very, very remote. Um, and others could be, as you say, two blocks away. Yeah. Um, so, how, so how do you join that up? So communication becomes a huge part of, 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 of what we need to do really, really well. You know, so what we focus on is getting some of those foundations right. So our people strategy is very much about enabling the business to deliver on its growth strategy but to do that you've got to have an engaged workforce and an engagement level is an output so what are all the things that we have to, to do, do to, to get, get there um, and 
you know, if I share with you some of the things that we do for ourselves. So, you know, our own environment, you know, just the office here in Holborn, you know, we want to make that a space where people are really happy to come to and, and get, a, get a great experience um, in every which way they can. We've just won awards for our office in, in Singapore, um, you know, and that was an amazing mm. um, sort of journey that the organisation went through there. In, in the Nordics, in Belgium. So we've got examples around the world where we do it really well. We've got examples where we have to do it much better. Okay. And, you know, for us, we have to be able to make sure that, you know, what we offer our clients is what we're doing for our own people. And that's exactly, you know, when we're promising stuff, we have to be committed to it. Yeah. Um, I'm really keen to understand your measurement process around the experience and engagement because... Mm -hmm. We've talk, you've talked about that quite a few times. And again, when you've got that sort of dispersed work workforce across the world, across yep. the globe and in different places, you just need to how in it. How's it connecting for you? And yep. getting that real feedback in real time and then being able to respond to it is most probably one of the key you know, constituents of your people strategy. Yep. So, so just tell us how you do that. Yeah. So, you know, like most companies, what we did um, and have done up until a couple of years ago is, you know, you do the traditional two-year survey. What we did differently for the first time a survey ago was that we did it online and we opened it up to all 460,000 employees worldwide. Two reasons. One, it gave us instant feedback at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and secondly, it was far more inclusive. You know, previously yeah, yeah, yeah. we just did it with the leadership team, the management, some sample sites. So, it, you know, you can extrapolate data. Um, in corporate services, so the business unit are working, it was 74% engagement rate. Brilliant. One away from upper quartile, and we worked with Aon Hewitt, um, which is great, but it's a point in time. Of course it is. And the challenge is that, you know, as you look back and you think, how do you do things differently? How do you become far more relevant? Um, what is it that you, that you need to do? So what we're looking at at the moment is how do you have instant pulse yeah. of what's happening, the heartbeat of what's going on in the organisation. I'll tell you what, so when I was at a conference the other day and I was talking about employee engagement and I had a question, and it, was a, it wasn't a question, it was one of someone making a point, which was, in our organisation, we have more data on the cleanliness of the toilets than we do on our people, but we know people drive value. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, outside the toilets, we've got the happy faces. And we know that if... You, and, I, and you sit there and you go... I know you're making a point, but actually there's something in that, you know, real time, easy to uh, collect, easy to go, something going on, let's go and have a look. So, I, and it's just, I've played it back to a few people and they go, yeah, you're, we all sort of know yeah. there's this bit about, well, actually, I'm managing an organisation with 470,000 people in there. How ready are my leadership teams? How ready are my people to do what we want them to do? Is So getting that feedback granular and more regular. And, and that is a key pillar of one of our HR um, <coughs> priorities. Um, so that employee experience piece um, is really relevant. So what you're, you're, what you're explaining there is exactly what, you know, we need to move away from. You know, it's important to have, you know, every two years or whatever, a bit of a benchmark to say, where are you roughly? But, you know, to bring it to life, you want to be able to get the feedback from your team now. You want to say, well, how are you guys feeling today? You know, what's worked really well? Pick the questions that are most relevant to you and then do something with that. 
And I think that's where we're heading. So we're exploring yeah. using different applications. We're exploring using different ways of doing this because that is what will make the difference. But we also want to make sure we've got a level of consistency so we can keep some level of continuity in some of the, the questions piece. that we're asking. But this should not be cumbersome. This should be something that people are really happy to, to share. And in fact, I remember... Um, you know, we had a HR leadership team meeting a couple of weeks ago and somebody spoke about, you know, how do you create that instant feedback piece? And somebody had mentioned, well, do you know, every time you have a conversation with somebody, maybe what you can do is give them an Uber rating and it goes to their boss. How was that experience for you? You know, what would that feel like? That is a game changer because it allows people to feel as if they can share instantaneously what they've just experienced. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how that would look in real life, but I mean, I thought that was a great insight in terms of doing things. I, th I think there's a, there's a quest that we're all on about how do we get this data? How do we get it, analyze it in a very simple way so it isn't hugely onerous? And then, you know, managers and leaders respond mm -hmm. to it. You know, there's definitely something about going to where the problem is and focusing but, on stuff. But, you know, to be able to do things like this, you also got to have the right attitude and mindset in that, in that sort of management group no, as well. Because you have to be open, you have to be transparent, um, and you have to be welcoming of feedback because otherwise it's pointless. You know, so these things can never be done in isolation. It, it is a cultural shift that you're making to in, allow, you know, it's almost having that coaching culture that you've got there, which is so easier said than done. Absolutely. Um, and and that, that's our challenge. So we're just going to take a short break and we'll be back in the second half of this podcast to talk to Raj about uh, some of the, the, the future of HR uh, potentially a little bit more about some of the challenges at Sodexu, and then finish off with a little bit about Raj the man. What does he do outside of work? What's the the, hum the whole human being do? Okay, so back in a couple of moments for the second part of this HR Futures podcast. Are you looking to reduce risks and operating costs or increase your agility and capacity? There's more pressure than ever for HR and finance to provide strategic value for the business and for CEOs. At Zealous, our expert team creates software and managed services that handle your entire payroll and HR admin processes. We believe there are two sides to the employee experience. The fundamentals that need to go unnoticed and experiences that employees really care about. And we can help you master both. We're here to make the complex simple freeing you up to focus on your people and achieve your goals. Find out more at zealous.com. Welcome back to the second part of this HR Futures podcast. With me today is Raj Verma. In the first half of uh, the interview, we talked about his current role at Sodexu the early part of his career at Ford, what he did at Santander. And we also talked a lot about engagement and uh, HR careers. So one of the things I'm really interested in, Raj, is, you know, HR can do a lot of different things. You know, the breadth of what we can touch and the sort of tools that we can now use are, you know, that, that it's huge. So how do you go about prioritizing, making trade-offs about what HR focuses on? So what's the process that you use at Sodexu to you know, think about the business, think about consumers, think about what we're trying to do strategically, and then decide what are the things that HR are going to focus on and major on? Well, look, we always start with the strategy and, and the business first and foremost, um, you know, which most companies would probably <laughs> say and do the same. I think for us... Um, 
you know, we are an enabling function. Everything we do has to enable the business to deliver. So, you know, we're a growth company um, and always have been. And that's been a huge priority for us. Um, so when we looked um, and only recently, you know, six, six odd months ago at, you know, what is our um, strategy for HR? Um, because we had a new chief people officer come in and, you know, she wanted to spend time to understand the business and, and how, how do we move that forward? And each of the businesses then had their own insights and expectations. So, you know, we went back to the strategic question. What do we want to do? What do we want to be? And how do we want to get there? So for me, one of the, the key things in any, any strategy is, you know, what's transactional and what's, what's transformative, you know, and, and, and knowing the difference between the two. You have to get the transactional stuff pretty much there right well that's all right isn't it we get that right the noise goes away and we can focus on the transformation we get it wrong and we end up getting dragged into the weeds don't absolutely we? and that's an you know age-old adage and and for me having those enablers like hris having good total rewards having you know somebody managing the sort of behind the scenes stuff is so so important and and i think it's often underestimated how difficult how expensive how complex that becomes because it's not just about the tools systems and processes it's about the culture um, so that's the first bit that you know we're continually looking to to improve for me where we add the most value is where we help to transform so you know things like anticipating the talent that you need so how do you plan for the workforce of the future you know where are you going to get the talent how are you going to create your succession is it are you buying resource? Are you building resource? Are you borrowing resource? You know, you've got the shared economy, you've got the gig economy. How do you blend all of that stuff in? And I'm interested in that. So just tell me about, you know, that as, a, as an example of that strategic thinking in relation to people. So, mm -hmm. you know, what talent have you articulated that's really important to you and how are you going about answering that question? Do we build it? Do we buy it? Do we rent it? Do yeah. We, you know. So maybe if, if I can give you a specific, so a big part of, of my business in, in corporate is global strategic accounts. Um, so these are clients that have a global footprint and they want to work with a partner that can provide them um, typically um, integrated facilities management services around the world. So one of our challenges is finding and having the right resource or the management to be able to work in an international environment. Um, so what we've done through our workforce planning is said, okay, we can buy these people in. It's quick, but it's expensive. And there's no guarantee of success because it's a cultural risk. You can um, build, which means that you start to create development programs. You start to bring in your early talent. You give them exposure faster. Uh, it takes time. Um, or you borrow, so you're bringing in contractors, consultants, and you're starting to... And actually what we found was that you need a blend yeah. of all three. So, you know, a couple of examples that we've done just last year was that we launched a new um, program called Ignite, um, which was about bringing in, you know, graduates with at least a couple of years' experience and putting them into this program that after two years, they'd be job-ready for... Um, an account manager of a global account somewhere in a region or, or whatever. Um, secondly, what we did, we created um, a, an internal program, Strategic Accounts Leadership Training Program, which was for internal talent and putting them through a yeah. process of accelerated experience because being international, you cannot learn from a book. 
You have to experience it. You have to understand it. You have to touch, feel, and see it. And that's what makes the difference. And that what and that is what makes a great account manager, a great account leader. Um, so you have to create that environment. Um, so you know those two examples allowed us in our workforce planning conversations to think about where the next generation of talent was coming from and how we were going to manage it. The key thing is somebody has to own it. HR do not own the people. The business own the people. We're there to enable them to be able to get this done. So if we can't find enough people on the market, are we looking in the right place? Are we looking for something that we don't actually need? Are we looking for something that's not out there? So that's the stuff that we have to help the business figure out. So that talent anticipation piece for me is, is hugely important and a big success driver or not for the business. Yep. Some of the other things that we've been working on um, is on talent management. You know, what's performance management of the future? You know, two, three years ago, you know, let's get rid of appraisals. That was everywhere. And then, well, okay, but so what? And how do you measure and, and, and how do you manage those instant conversations with people and and there's lots of stuff out there about disrupting hr and, and what's your what's your i'm, I'm interested because yeah. I, I have this debate all the time i'm sure as you do and what's your take on it i mean because i think there's a there was an overreaction you know we know that often you know we've spent years redesigning the bloody form and sending it out and training managers and the conversations are okay and some are great and some are yeah. not and then we try we spend our time chasing the process and getting the measurement and all of that <clears throat> And then we go the other way, don't we? Which is, we don't need this. It's just about managers doing what they should do and having career conversations and giving feedback. And we sort of know that without any kind of process, that's not quite going to deliver. So there's somewhere in the middle that we're yeah. trying to find land on something. But So where, what was your take on that conversation? Look, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. Somewhere in the middle, you have to find your, your, your sweet spot for your culture more than anything else. And I think, you know, the conversations differ based on, you know, where you are in the organization. So for me, it's really important that, you know, people have the opportunity to ask for and get feedback. Um, That for me is is the key principle. And then to do something with it. I haven't come across many managers or employees who love appraisal time, you know, and it's the bane of most HR people's lives to saying, have you done it? Have you submitted it? You know, let's look at the calibration. Let's look at X, Y, and Z. And, you know, and, and I always ask the question, so what? You know, as a result of that, what have we done and what difference has it made? And I think, you know, we've sort of climatized ourselves a little bit in the organization to just accept, you know, you've got your rating from one to five and let's give everyone a three. And, you know, it's all becoming quite vanilla because um, nobody's really pushing hard enough for the superstars to be shining lights and for those that aren't performing to be uh, managed mm-hmm. in a different way. So I think we have to be a little bit more creative. I think we have to be far more transparent and not be afraid to have the conversation. I mean, you know what it's like, you know, can we come and have a chat? Automatically, the connotations that it has, it's got to be something bad. You know, I really need to speak to you. And, and you think, well, why? Yeah. It's because that's how we've grown up over the, over the past. So how do you change that narrative? How do you use language that's far more engaging, uplifting, um, that's going to make you want to have the conversation? So um, I thought that stuff about performance management, I think that stuff about talent was absolutely brilliant. You know that, how do we build, buy, how do we borrow, how do we really think long-term about the capability we're going to need in three, four, five years to be successful? 
Is there other stuff in terms of your people strategy that you've majored on and you think are real drivers of organisational performance in the future? I think for me, one of the the key cornerstones of this is about um, developing your talent and giving good career options and ideas. And, um, you know, when I started working, it was very much a ladder, right? You went on the rungs and you got your grade and you got to your next job and it was great and you could do that until you retire pretty much. That doesn't happen anymore. It probably hasn't happened for a while. Um, So you have to create, you know, our head of learning will call it lattices. You know, you go up, out, in, out, you know, every which way just to get the experience. Um, And I think, you know, one of the other interesting things is that we shouldn't be afraid of letting people go. You know, people feel they can get the experience elsewhere, then, you know, we should celebrate that. And we should celebrate the fact that one day they may even come back. Now, I like that because, again, I'm picking up on that because I thought you was going to talk about that. One of the things that I've seen more of with organisations recently is the idea that actually, you know, as long as they were a good lever, they wouldn't have to further their career. We're buying back in a senior role or in a different role. But historically, that was never the way. You know, you've deserted the family, you've, you've run away from us, so we're not going to have your back. Whereas I think yeah. people are getting much more mature and, and thoughtful about careers. So I think there is something in that, absolutely. And I think, you know, like most organisations, you know, loyalty is quite important. Um, but if you look at the environment we're in today, there may not be those opportunities for people within your organisation. So do you... You know, if you're doing the right thing, the right things for them to go and seek that opportunity elsewhere to be the best version of themselves that they can be, and then maybe one day come back. We have a lot of boomerang employees at Sedexa, by the way. You know, people who go out, get some experiences, and they actually want to come back because, you know, the hardest thing about Sedexo is making people aware of who, why, and where. Because, you know, we're not a big brand that people will know if you walk mm. down, down the road. But actually, when you come into Sodexo, it's easy to sell. It's easy to sell who we are and what we are and why we are. And that's really important, I think, for the future because people want to, want to have a sense of purpose. Mm. And it's that power in that purpose that if you mm-hmm. can bottle, that is what people will buy. But also, I think, you know, that boomerang thing is if people want to come back, I mean, is there any greater endorsement? I've worked here before. I thought it was great. I've gone off and done something interesting, but I'm keen to come back. That's I mean, you can't get more of an endorsement than that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what you see is the amount of alumni on social media, on LinkedIn, on Facebook that you see, um, you know, people are actually proud of where they've worked. They're really... Um, keen to keep some of those relationships going, you know, and even if some come back as contractors or consultants or they set up a new company and they want to collaborate, you know, it's it's that environment that is healthy. Um, and that's exactly where we are in Sodexo in terms of, you know, if you leave, you know, we'll, we'll help you. Um, and as you say, if you're a good leaver, we'll, we'll help you come back for the right role. Because we, I think we recognise that we can't be all things to all people all the time. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that sounds great. So uh, let's just move on. I want to talk a bit more about the HR profession. So uh, tell me about what you think is our greatest failing. Um, you know, I've been out of HR, so I went off to run the professional body in the UK for 10 years, the recruitment body called the OEC. Uh, I came back and, you know, started to talk to HR, do conferences and do a bit of consulting and a bit of non-exec stuff. So I thought I'd go back and have a look at the, the thought leadership and um, I don't know about you, but as I moved on, you know, I'm still hearing about Ulrich, you know, 
27, well, not quite 27, 96. <laughs> well, it's a long time ago, isn't it? It'd be a long time ago. Um, and I could see instances of us doing great things. You know, can see organisations and HR directors and chief people officers doing great stuff. So I'm not saying in isolation we're not making progress, mm-hmm. but as a profession, are we really moving forward at the pace that we should be? Uh, and if we're not, so that's, I suppose, the first question. And if we're not, what should we be doing? You know, where, where is that failing? Where are we? Why are we not moving forward? You know, if you mm. think about transformation and transformation of organisations and the world of work in the next 10 years is going to accelerate. And we need to sort of be at the vanguard of that and driving it and leaving it. And I'm, I'm not sure we are. So I'm really interested in your take on that. Look, I think, um, you know, we spend far too long um, looking back um, and, you know, the what ifs. Um, you know, and history is, is, is great. Um, but, you know, that shouldn't necessarily define our future. And I think, you know, with the next generation of leadership coming in, as I said earlier, you know, the focus is so much more on the humanistic element of the workplace and the people experience and um, getting the best performance that you possibly can, however you can. That is a differentiator. And I think if you're in HR, then you need to be the experts in people. You know, I can imagine us having far more people with backgrounds in psychology, with backgrounds in psychiatry, with backgrounds in in Mm. different fields, but all related to the human factor. Because I think that will be the differentiator for our business. I think so. Aligned to data most probably. So understand our people. So I have the psychology stuff, but just where are they? What's going on? And and then the question about what can we do about how do we change it? What does this mean in leadership behaviour? So it is. And, and I think, look, one of the, the interesting things, when you just look at some of the organisations out there that maybe the unicorns and the, and the sort of fintechs, et cetera, they're doing things differently, but they have a different set of problems, yeah, right? Okay. So the amount of people who jump from one fintech to the other and et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think each generation has bought its own challenges and for hr i think you know we have to be able to find a way of figuring out what's going to be the next big thing and be ahead of the curve not behind it and that's where you get far more credibility that c-suite you know we should not be the 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 police of well so and so has not done x y and z i mean that's like 20 years ago we need to be you know far more like strategists far more um experiential in terms of the, the, the touch, the look, the feel of, of the environment that you're in. I think that's where we will add the most value as a HR leadership. Yeah. Um, and I think also, you know, we have a huge role to play in raising the brand awareness of your organisation. You know, the value proposition. Somebody spoke to me, you know, it, it's all about the individual value proposition now. It's what does it mean for you? Why would you join? Not the, the corporate spiel that comes out of organisations, but how does it resonate with you? So I always go back and, you know, big fan of um, Simon Sinek and his why and, you know, everything we do. You have to keep going back to that because I think that's so powerful in tomorrow's world. Um, So as HR, that's the space we should be looking to fill. And I think you're right. So so what do we need to do? Is it about different raw material, different people, different development strategies? 
I don't know. Is it more about, you know, we talked a bit earlier on about different periods in different roles. Is it more business people with that expertise in people? Mm. I think, do you think we need to do differently? I think one thing, you, you know, any HR leader needs to have that golden thread of, of being you know, professional in that space and owning that, that, that people piece. I think the best HR leaders are probably the ones who've experienced things outside of the function. Um, you know, whether that's a secondment, whether that's a three-year program somewhere or whatever, I think that gives you better insight. And I think that gives you more credibility. I think, you know, you talked about data, technology. These are great enablers that we should have at our fingertips. You know, we have typically spent 80% of our time collecting data and 20% of our time doing anything with it. You know, that's not, that's not going to help us with our credibility. Um, but you also have to think of it strategically with your CFO and say, where do you put the investment? What's going to give, up, give us our biggest draw? Because, you know, putting in a HCM, you know, you're talking five years and God knows yeah, how many millions and the whole pain that goes with that. What are you going to get out of it? You know, with the amount of cloud-enabled solutions out there, is there a smarter, slicker way of getting stuff done? Because let's focus on the output, not the input. And I think that's we've got to switch our thinking. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, I think technology is an enabler. And we need to make the business cases. We're, you know, we're, we're running our businesses not blind, but we're not enough information about our people. And if we can get the insight, then we can do things differently. But we need to Absolutely. be able to do business. Okay. I think one, one other thing I would say is that certainly... You know, we, we look at, you know, a lot about diversity and inclusion and belonging. Um, and I think more and more companies are feeling far more comfortable understanding it, but not always talking about it or doing enough with it. And I think that is a huge enabler for having the right talent as well in your organization. So when you're taking the pulse of where you want to join, whether you want to stay longer term or whatever, these are all areas that... You know, I don't know about yeah, you, but yeah. when you were looking at your first role, did you say, well, I wonder what their diversity and inclusion charter looks like, yeah. right? So how do you make that part of your brand? And, and that CSR piece, and so our diversity and inclusion sits yeah, under yeah. CSR. Um, it's really important that, you know, you have that level of connectivity with people. You know, you've got to figure out what's important. And that's when I talk about anticipation. Yeah, we so should too. be in that space, thinking yeah, about yeah, what yeah. needs to be thought about. I'm thinking about whether we should just jump into this, right? I want to talk about diversity and inclusion now. It's not on my list. And the reason for that is, um, you know, the data's there. You know, uh, build boards, build leadership teams that are more diverse and you get greater business results. You know, we've had that data for 10, 15 years. We talk about neurodiversity, just people that think different. We're talking about gender pay reporting, we're trying to make sure that we're representative of the communities, etc. All of that work, which is uh, commendable and important, but we don't seem to be making a huge amount of difference. Now, uh, you know, there is movement, again, but not at the pace that we most probably think it should be. I'm fascinated about what you're doing at Sodexo and also what we you think organisations need to be doing, you know, to... to to bring it to, to fruition. Now, I know it takes time. <laughs> I know you have to build pipelines and bring people in and you know tackle unconscious bias and all the things. Yeah. But it just see it frustrates me. It seems to be a lot of rhetoric, a lot of noise, and then not as much action as I would like to see. 
Yeah, look, I think, I mean, I, I can't disagree um, with you. I, th- I think certainly from a Sodexo perspective, we started this journey, you know, a long time ago. Um, you know, so when you hear our CEO speak, he'll always talk about the women and men of Sodexo. Because for us, having gender balance at every level is yeah. so, so important. Um, you know, we one of the things that we do, you know, we're not great at shouting about some of the great stuff we do in Sodexo. Um, and I think that's just part of our, our general culture. We're getting better at it. Um, but, you know, we have won so many awards globally for some of the yeah. work that we've done, um, the examples that we've shared, um, both in gender, in ethnicity, in disability, um, LGBT, um, in age. So we work across these different areas. Um, I myself am the global um, sponsor for Culture and Origins, and I focus on local minorities, race, ethnicity, and BAME. Um, so having that visibility at a senior level is really important to many organizations. Um, you know, we, we, we work on trying to educate um, our teams. So when they're hiring, you know, we have blind CVs in the UK, cool. for example. Um, but what does that mean? Has that shifted the needle enough? Um, but has it, it shifted the needle? I think it's it's not made enough of a difference that I would have expected, but it has made a difference. Okay. More so because people are thinking differently. And this is, a, for me, it's a generational shift. You, you, we're not going to solve a lot of these challenges. I mean, last night I was, the, I was at the um, Asian Women Achievements Award, which is now in its 20th year, and, um, and they shared some of the great stuff that Asian women are doing in the mm-hmm. UK. And it's phenomenal. But that started, you know, I, they were saying by with five or six people. And now they had something like 66, you know, the doctors, they were scientists. These were, I, I was so humbled um, yeah. just to see the spread of how far we have become. Still not far enough, but we have become far more in tune with where we are. I mean, you know, May 21st, we have... Um, Day of, of Culture, and um, we're actually hosting something in Sodexo. Um, and we're launching a white paper um, on culture and origins around the world and, and what we've learned from that. Yeah, yeah. We have um, Bina Candola coming to yeah, yeah. Um, facilitate <laughs> and share, you know, modern, modern racism in the workplace and what does that mean. Um, so, you know, we're trying to not only educate ourselves, but also help our clients understand some of the challenges and the benefits of working through what we've worked through and what does that mean. Um, You know, I don't think the journey is ever going to end because you cannot take your foot off the pedal. Mm. You have to keep going. Um, And and I think part of our challenge um, as an organisation, as a global organisation, is to help other organisations learn from what we've done. You know, when you've got 460 or 1,000 people you have a little bit of insight into into the way of the world. Um, so, you know, we're all about collaborating and sharing that. So it sounds like you're making real progress. And is there any insight, you know, from that work around culture, origins, diversity, progression that you go, oh, there was one thing that we did. I'm, I'm always looking for the little nuggets, you know, anything that you think has made a real difference? I think for me, one of the big learnings is that, you know, the DNI space should not be owned by DNI. It should be owned by the business because it's the people belong to the business. You know, just as HR enablers, DNI are great enablers because they bring that thought leadership, they bring that challenge. You know, we have a fantastic chief diversity officer, you know, and 
her style, her insight, you know, is phenomenal. And that makes people think because at the end of the day, people have to make that personal choice. Um, and we want people to make that choice knowing what's around, what could be done, what could be different. Um, and that, for me, is what makes the difference. Okay. Thank you for that. That was really insightful, actually. Um, I want to talk about automation, mm-hmm. machine learning, uh, AI, 3D printing, Internet of Things. I mean, I saw something recently from a guy from Massachusetts Institute of Technology that was just saying, you know, the pace of technology uh, and the change driven by technology is really exponential. And he did this fantastic diagram, you know, you know, across my working life, the facts, the computer, the mobile phone. And, and then he has this, goes like this, you know, and you go, well, that's going to be an interesting place to work. Um, <laughs> so what does this mean for you? So I'm sure there are people within Sodexo thinking, well, what can we automate? How does it help us be more efficient? But, you know, there are some real challenges with this. There will be more displacement, perhaps more displacement at pace. How do we retrain our people? Mm-hmm. Lifelong learning, I can, you know. But yep. So what's your what's Sodexo's take on this and what work are you doing around it and what do you think it it leads to for you? Well, first of the future of work is hugely important for Sodexo and we have um, certainly, in, we have a think tank in HR, so I'm actually co-leading that um, oh, to okay. get the next generation of HR professionals thinking about what what does the future look like and we work with our strategy group and we work with you know different facets of the organization to figure out what does that mean so you know the background for us is very much you know the new workforce is going to be more diverse more global more gender balanced and there'll be a far wider spread of generations so that's the backdrop you know that's an inevitable trend that's coming our way in fact it's already here so with the advance of ai i think certainly in our industry um, there will be a need to look at what skills are distinctly human. That will be a differentiator. You know, we see a lot of rhetoric about jobs being automated. Actually, it's not jobs, it's tasks. tasks. Yeah, yeah. Right? So you have to be able to differentiate between the two. And I think, you know, the way machines will perform things um, will help our people, therefore, spend time on being with our customers, being with our consumers taking them away from environments that may um, not be as safe, for example. So if you get machines to do yeah, some yeah, of the yeah. tricky stuff, yeah, yeah. then Absolutely. you know that, that gives us a lot more opportunity with other, other areas. Um, and the environments that we work can be quite harsh. You know, when I, I, I spoke a little bit about working in oil mining and gas, you know, there's a remote yeah, site, yeah, yeah. so you want to make sure, you know, for us, safety is our number one priority. So whatever we can do through technology, through AI, through robots, we will absolutely need to look at that and do that because, you know, there's nothing more important for us than, than our people in that respect and, and the health and well-being that goes with that. So, you know, we have that moral responsibility for our people. Um, so we also can't deny the fact that the jobs that are at risk of the highest automation are the ones that are probably repetitive, are probably ones that are entry level, um, are probably ones that are in predictable physical environments, right? That, that, that's typically where yeah, you would normally yeah. start to get your, yeah, yeah. your biggest return. Um, so, you know, we have to continually adapt our business model and how we operate and what does is, what is the future site of Sodexo look like? What do we offer our clients 
um, that's going to be mm. um, meaningful enough for them to feel that we're up there with the greatest innovators, with the greatest thinkers about how the world of work is looking. So we're looking at all of this stuff as we speak. Um, you know, so for our frontline, it's really important that we keep them engaged. We keep the lines of communication open because, you know, I think you'd mentioned earlier, having that level of transparency yeah, yeah. With, with the people in your business is so important. I mean, this is not just hitting our industry, it's hitting every industry. We are a people intensive industry. We're in the service services yeah. market, right? So you know you're going to be you're going to have to focus far more on what it means for the customer and what yeah. it means for our for our for our teams. Um, I think you know when we look at what it means for machine learning, for automation, AI, um, as well as a great opportunity for Sodexo, it's a great opportunity for people. You know, reskilling, retraining figuring out different ways of doing things. You know, I can't imagine how many times I've heard that my kids won't know what they're going to be doing because half the jobs no. haven't been invented yet. I have no idea if that's right or wrong. But, you know, there's an element of that. Actually, if they're, if they're great with people, if they're great with um, that level of empathy, if they've got those social skills, do you know what? There will be an opportunity and a job yeah. for them somewhere. And I think part of that is, is trying and testing and taking a risk with some of this stuff. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that, that we don't know and it will be organisations adapting. I think you're right. We sort of know there's two things that is definitely the reskilling and helping get in front of the technology and the automation mm. to give our people the best chance of two things, really. Thinking about their careers, but also how you work with machines yeah. and algorithms and stuff is going to be interesting. And then secondly, the whole thing about careers are just going to be different, aren't they? You're going to have, you know, they're going to take out some of the, the natural sort of steps that we've had historically in organizations and i think careers will become more linear uh before you then go out i mean i just think there's going to be change and i think that i think the thing that has resonated from what you said we just got to try and get in front of it you know mm -hmm. try and understand what might happen play do some scenarios and think about how we would respond so that we're preparing you know we're we're robust about our preparation for the future of work rather than totally anticipating how it's going to play out because i'm not sure we're going to know yeah. are we no, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree with that. So I want to do one final question before I ask you a bit about yourself. And I suppose it's about your career and potential legacy. So you've been mm -hmm. at Sodexo 12 years. Uh, you've had a, a, a very successful career to date. What next is for you, uh, at, you know, at some point? Is it a bigger role in HR or um, are you thinking about, you know, going off to do non-exec and, I don't know, become a lecturer or whatever it might be? So... <laughs> What, you know, what, what else? But more importantly, the second part of the question is, what would you like your legacy to be? Mm -hmm. I think um, f for me, I certainly feel as if I've got far more to do. Um, so long as I can maintain that, that energy, drive and passion in, in this space, absolutely. Um, and for me, you know, career... In the past, the success was dictated by size and position in organization. But for me, it's about you're successful when you've made an impact. You're successful when you've shared an experience. Um, and, I, you know, just you, we talk about automation, but you look at the exponential impact technology has had um, in the workplace, in the environment. Um, so for me, it's really about um, figuring out where I can make that difference. Okay. So, you know... Perhaps a CEO, chief experience officer one day. You never know. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's finding that niche that's going to get the best out of me 
um, and that's going to get the best for the organization. And I think you have to keep reinventing yourself. You have to keep learning. You have to figure out different and yeah, new yeah. ways of doing things. Um, because, you know, in 20 years, an awful lot has changed in the time I've been working. Yeah. Um, and it's changed, as you say, the hockey stick curve yeah, yeah, yeah. in the past three to five years have been, has been steeper still. So for me, my legacy, you know, would be that, you know, that I did make that difference. I did you know, take something from what it was to something that it is now to something that it could be. You know, for me, that that would be a great legacy to have. Okay, final question then. And it's a bit about you. So let's put HR to one side. Let's put work to one side. What does Raj the man do outside of work? What are your passions? Um, what are the things that you spend your time on? Just tell us a bit about, you know, family, books, literature, literature, theatre, music, whatever it is, you know, sport. Um, Well, I come from a very large, close Indian family and everything that goes with that, so that probably takes most (laughs) most of my time. Um, Currently living in Warwick, um, married um, to a teacher, got two teenage kids and uh, a one-year-old cockapoo um, who pretty much, I guess, rules the roost. Um, You know, we're first-time dog owners, so I think we've treated this dog better than we did our kids. Um, But we are learning the hard way. Um, you know, and you travel a lot, so you get away with it a little yeah. bit. Yeah, <laughs> do you know it's really funny? My daughter actually made us sign a contract um, to say, you know, once we get the dog, then we've all got responsibility. And the only person that ever signed it was her. Yeah. So I think she's got a career in law somewhere. Um, or HR. Or HR, <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I wasn't going to say that on this, on this podcast. Um, look, I enjoy, I enjoy traveling, um, you know, professionally for work. I travel an awful lot, but also, you know, with the family. And for me, it's that shared experience. So it's almost always more fun doing it with people than it is doing it doing it by yourself um music wise um now this might be a little thing a little bit too vintage for some of the audience but um, van morrison oh, very okay. easy listen um you know my favorite songs are um, brown eyed brown eyed girl um even more vintage dare i say is don mclean's american pie yeah um and i don't know why but it reminds me of my uni days i think and probably because i was the last always the last one there still standing but um in terms of uh, things like sports, um, you know, I'll, t- I'll try pretty much most things. You know, I did, did martial arts, uh, more so for the kids than anything else to get them into that. Um, Love playing badminton, cricket, table tennis. Um, also like going to the spa with my wife, or I'm not quite sure that's a competitive sport just yet, but um, <laughs> we live in hope, we live in hope. Um, Book-wise, um, I, I, I do enjoy the old um, John Grisham novels. Okay. Um, they're quite fun. Um, current, you know, plus, I travel so much, so I do get the urge to buy airport management books. And suddenly, in the last one, I well, the one I'm reading now is called Revolution in a Heartbeat by a um, guy called Matt Stevens, all about Good. the employee experience. Yeah, it's very pragmatic about you know yeah. how you go from engagement and look at experience and, and you know, all the stuff that we've yeah, talked yeah, about yeah. today. Um, and actually, one of my favourite books was, um, you know, What They Teach You at Harvard Business School um, by Philip Broughton. And um, I wish I'd read that before I did mine. Um, <laughs> in terms of things like movies, you know, you, you really can't beat a bit of Marvel. Um, so this is Everyone's something... Everyone's talking about this. Well, Marvel you know... Films and the, the new one, you know? It's, yeah, so Endgame, you know, so I'm looking forward to watching that with the kids and trying to avoid everybody who has watched it. Um but, you know, there, there are things that I'll do with the kids differently. So for my daughter, it'll be, you know, the movies. And my son, um, and I don't know why, 
He, he loves property programs. So when property we programs. yeah, and he's, okay. he's thirteen. So when we moved back from Australia, we bought we bought a bought a house and spent two years renovating it. And I've done a few projects in between. You know, so the big passion that I share with him um, is very much about every home improvement program on TV. I think we've got it on. You know, speed oh, yeah. dial pretty much. So we'll we'll constantly watch that. But you know, it's something that we 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 bond with, yeah, and it's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I volunteer on a couple of boards. Um, I do a lot with Warwick University as an alumni. Um, I'm on their um, steer co for the mentoring program that we do for the MBAs. Um, so look, I keep myself busy with, with a whole bunch of stuff and try and keep it varied. You said you're on a couple of boards, uh, sort of voluntary boards? Voluntary, yeah. Go on, tell yeah. us a little bit about those. Well, one of them's a, a property um, management company, funnily enough. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, that's quite interesting because I've never been yeah. in, in that part of the property piece but um learning a lot more about facilities management and dealing and you know some of it's something i can relate to with sodexo and some yeah. of it's you know all new news and i'm just in the midst of um finding out about a couple of opportunities that i'm currently working with at the moment with um with a couple of charities Brilliant. um so hopefully um, i'll know a bit more about that soon um but yeah it's just it's just keeping myself sounds like you're pretty busy. energized it is I, I i'm one of these people who can't sit still i have to be doing stuff and um and I like to be. I like doing stuff with people. Talk about family holidays. What do you do with family holidays? Because yes. I find that family holidays. And my, my son's, you know, twenty four, so he's a bit older now, so he doesn't really come on holiday with us. Um, but my wife can sit around a pool all day, yeah. and I find that the most. I just, just. Yeah, that 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 would not be my my no. idea of a holiday. I think for me, it's doing stuff, and also for me, five to seven days is long enough. You know, I'd rather have four or five of those five to seven days a year than, you know, a week of two weeks worth yes. of holiday somewhere. Um, so I like short, sharp yeah. bursts of, of re-energizing, doing stuff and, you know, being active. That for me is, is, is my holiday. Yeah. OK, thanks for, for sharing that with us. Thank you for your time uh, that you've taken in, in this podcast. I think there's been some great insight. There's some great value. I'm sure you'll get really positive feedback from it. So thank you for spending the time. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Kevin. Nice to speak to you.